1: In this chapter, Jesus is working one large, constantly evolving metaphor. It is a pastoral metaphor, dealing with sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds and gates. And Jesus shifts and shades the language over the course of the chapter in order to make a variety of points about himself. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door... But climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. This extended metaphor builds upon imagery and circumstances that would have been very familiar to Jesus' first century Jewish hearers. In many villages, several families would have kept their flocks together in a shared enclosure and would have hired a watchman to stand at the gate. Only authorized persons, the members of the families who tended to the sheep, would be let in and out. If someone tries to hop the fence, as it were, he is clearly up to no good. Jesus is saying that he is the one who has come in the appropriate way. The thieves and robbers are false leaders and false shepherds who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than in protecting and feeding the flock. The Old Testament background for this teaching is, of course, Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel 34, God rebukes the bad shepherds of Israel. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So, God declares that the leadership in Israel is totally corrupt. It has failed. It has fed on the sheep rather than feeding the sheep, and it needs to be replaced. Then in Ezekiel 34, Verses 15 to 16, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat, and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So, God promises that he will personally take over the leadership of the flock. He will feed them, lead them, protect them, and strengthen them. But then later in the chapter, he says something very odd. He says, and this is verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And you think, okay, which is it? Will God shepherd the people or will David shepherd the people? Now, of course, by this point in the Old Testament, David is dead and buried. This is many years after David. So we are certainly to read this as a son of David, a king in the Davidic line who is particularly like David and who is in some way God, right? God God himself shepherding the people as a son of David. That has to be what the passage means, but that would have been a very confusing prophecy in Old Testament times. It would have seemed contradictory. How can we be led by God and by a son of David? David, how can one person be both David's God and David's son? There is no satisfactory answer to that until the birth of Jesus Christ. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who has come to replace the thieves and robbers, he is stepping into this confusing prophecy and bringing absolute clarity. He is saying, I am God and I am the son of David and I have come to claim my sheep. Verse 3 goes on to say, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, this is a fairly complicated metaphor. Jesus is saying that he comes into a crowded sheepfold. Remember, many families stored their sheep in a common pen. He speaks, and his sheep, the sheep that belong to his father, recognize his voice and follow him out of the fold, which, of course, implies that not all the sheep in the fold belong to the father. It further implies that the voice of Jesus is a sort of theological dog whistle. It can only be heard by those who already belong to God. D.A. Carson says here in his devotional commentary, the implicit election is ubiquitous in the passage. Ubiquitous means everywhere. The idea of election is assumed in John's gospel. It is everywhere and it is nowhere more foundational than here. Jesus walks into the sheepfold. He speaks. Some sheep run away from him because he sounds like a stranger to them. But other sheep, the sheep that belong to his family, they run over gladly and fall in behind him and are led out to pasture. They already know his voice, even though they'd never heard it. They were born waiting for it. That's what Carson means by implicit election. It is everywhere in this metaphor. In verse 7, Jesus redefines the terms of the picture he has created. So again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here Jesus is saying, in pictorial form, what he says in straight-up prose in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As John Bunyan famously said, Jesus is the wicket gate. In Bunyan's famous story, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, passes through a small, narrow, stooped door, which is called, in the story, the wicket gate. A wicket in Old English is a small door. We still use this word in certain contexts. When you go to a concert or a baseball game, you pick up your tickets at the ticket wicket, that tiny little slot through which you pass your money and they they pass your tickets. Wicket means tiny little door. Christian had to pass through this tiny little door. And on the other side of it, he began to walk on the road that led to the celestial city. One day while he was walking on this road, a man hopped over the hedge and joined him on his journey. Bunyan gave him the name Ignorance. Christian asked him where he was going, and he said that he was going to the celestial city. He was going to heaven. Did you pass through the wicket gate? Christian asked him. But Ignorance laughed and said that the people of his country had known of a shortcut for many years and that this shortcut worked just as well in getting pilgrims to the gate of the city. But of course, he was wrong. He found out too late that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. He found out that he could not bypass the wicked gate. If you don't go through the door, if you don't deal with Jesus Christ, then you cannot pass into heaven. That is what Bunyan said. And more importantly, that is what Jesus is saying here. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now we want to notice two things here. First of all, notice that Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep. That's a remarkable statement. A good shepherd might risk his life for the sheep, but what kind of a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? No human shepherd would do that. A human life is worth far more than the life of a sheep. So Jesus is expecting this to get our attention. Jesus is saying that his sheep have remarkable value. And as a good shepherd, he will do more than risk his life for them, he intends to die for them. Now, the other remarkable thing here is that we are told that Jesus has other sheep that are not in this particular fold. He is referring to the Gentiles here. Jesus ministered exclusively in Israel during his life, but he understood that, this, that his flock was far wider than any one nation. He will fulfill the promise made to Abraham and he will be a blessing to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. Thanks be to God. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge... I have received from my father. Now, this verse has incredible relevance to some of the theological controversies that are presently current within contemporary evangelicalism. Some scholars are trying to suggest that the death of Jesus was not the will of God. They say that God didn't want Jesus to die and and God didn't commission him to die. Rather, his death is attributable to the sinfulness of the crowd and the rebellion of the Jewish leaders. But to state the obvious, that isn't what Scripture says, Old Testament or New. In Isaiah 53.10, we read that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And here in John 10, we read that laying down his life was a charge I have received from my father. Colin Cruz says helpfully here, he had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again because It was what he had been commanded to do by his father. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Here we see that the more Jesus talks and the more he reveals about his identity and mission, the more divided people are. He is moving through the flock and all the sheep pass under his rod. Verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered round him and said to him, how long will you keep us in in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Here again, we see some of what Carson called the implicit election that is ubiquitous in this chapter. Jesus is saying that how you respond to his word reveals the truth about who you are. Jesus isn't convincing people. He is dividing people. He is revealing who people are and whose people are. That is massively significant. And he is making remarkable claims about himself. I and the father are one. That's a big statement. And the Jews take offense. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them. I have shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This passage provides an interesting insight into how Jesus used the word of God. Jesus seems to be operating under the assumption that if you have a verse and you are interpreting it correctly, then you win the argument, right? The the Jews are saying, the Bible teaches that there is only one God. You say that you are God, therefore you must be blaspheming. At first glance, that's a reasonable argument, unless, of course, Jesus is God. But that's another story and another point which Jesus has made before. Here, he wants to prove a point about Scripture. So he says that the Bible refers to other people as gods, as per Psalm 82, verse 6. Therefore, Jesus says, the issue is not do I use the word God to refer to myself, but am I using it legitimately? And by legitimately, I mean biblically. That's the question. D. A. Carson says here in his Pillar Commentary on John as Jesus uses the text, the general line of his argument is clear. This scripture Proves that the word God is legitimately used to refer to others than God Himself. If there are others whom God, the author of Scripture, can address as God and sons of the Most High, i.e., sons of God, on what biblical basis should anyone object when Jesus says, I am God's Son? Quote. Jesus is saying, You haven't understood the whole Bible on this matter. I have. Therefore, I win. That's an interesting window into how Jesus understands the use and authority of God's word. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Here we see happening what Jesus had said would happen. He would come in the way prescribed by Holy Scripture. He would speak, and his people would hear. They would recognize his voice. They would go in through Jesus and come out of the fold of Judaism
0: and find pasture. Thanks be to God